This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Leica Microsystems. Leica Microsystems develops and manufactures microscopes and scientific instruments for the analysis of microstructures and nanostructures. Widely recognized for optical precision and innovative technology, the company is one of the market leaders in compound and stereo microscopy, digital microscopy, confocal laser scanning, and super-resolution microscopy with related imaging systems, electron microscopy sample preparation, and surgical microscopy. Today's presentation is titled, Basics of Fluorescence Lifetime Imaging and FLIM Applications to FRET Biosensors and is being presented by Dr. Luis Alvarez from Leica Microsystems. Luis studied physical chemistry at the University of Paris in Orsay, where he worked on molecular quantitative imaging in live cells. He concentrated on fluorescence lifetime imaging and the effects of reactive oxygen species on fluorescent proteins. In 2010, he moved to Dublin, where he worked on host pathogen interactions at the University College Dublin and the National Children's Research Center. He studied how mucosal immunity uses reactive oxygen species to respond to bacterial pathogen infections. During this time, he developed 3D infection models from ex vivo organ cultures and organoids. In 2016, he moved to the University of Oxford, where he developed advanced quantitative imaging approaches to study host pathogen interactions. This work centered on the understanding of HIV and Ebola entry mechanisms into cells. He joined Leica Microsystems in 2019 as a product application manager for functional imaging. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Lewis at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash webinar. That's bit.ly slash webinar, all lowercase, all one word. So now over to you, Lewis, for the presentation. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining. I'm going to be talking today about uh, the basics of fluorescence lifetime imaging and how FLIM applications relate to FRED biosensors. Uh, I'm Dr. Luis Alvarez. I'm currently working for Leica Microsystems. And today I'm going to do a, an overview on the basics in fluorescence, uh, we're going to talk about uh, foster resonance energy transfer to FRET, and um, we're going to go into some uh, uh, practical approaches of these. And I will show you some data that uh, we just published from uh, my work in the University of Oxford. So these that you see in your screen is uh, what is called a Jablonski-Perrin diagram, in which we can see uh, molecular orbitals. Basically, fluorescence, what it is, is that we're bringing an excitation energy, usually a laser, and bringing molecules to an excited state. After a relaxation time, we uh, can go back to the ground state by either non-radiative disexcitation paths or by fluorescence. Uh, the reality of fluorescence, and sometimes we forget, is that fluorescence is a statistical process. There's only a given probability 
to create a photon or to give out fluorescence. Uh, if you give too much energy to the system, you have uh, other two probabilities. Uh, one is phosphorescence and the other one is photodestruction or what we call photobleaching. Uh, these, uh, when we look at it, uh, is the result of the competition between the radiative or the fluorescence uh, decay and the non-radiative paths. And the difference between them is what we call quantum yield or the amount of packets of photons that are given by a molecule. So uh, fluorescence uh, is a complicated process. I have listed here uh, some uh, uh, very important readings because obviously we will not be able to uh, cover all of what you would want to know about fluorescence. There's two key books, uh, Molecular Fluorescence Principles and Applications from uh, Bernard Valeur and Principles of Fluorescence Spectroscopy, the Lakovitz uh, book. I have also listed three uh, key publications that uh, should allow you to go in further depth in the different things that we will discuss today. Uh, the first one is on Fred Microscopy from Sergi Padilla and Marc Clamier. And second one uh, is a more general introduction for fluorescent imaging techniques uh, from Keith Jaling, uh, George Gerhardt, and Marcus Hink. And uh, the third one is a guide for fluorescent protein pairs on Fred. So let's talk a little bit about Fred and uh, uh, fossil resonance energy transfer. The basic principle is that we have two proteins that are tagged. One is a donor that we see here in green, and the other one is what we call an acceptor in red. Uh, the idea is that if you have a protein-protein interaction, uh, these two uh, molecules will come together, and this will create the transfer or the FRET. Uh, this can also happen in the case of biosensors when we introduce small molecules. Whenever they bind to the site, we'll have uh, the donor and acceptor coming closer together and would generate a similar um, effect. Now, let's look a little again to the japlonsky perrin diagram and look at what this means. And uh, this will help you understand uh, how lifetime uh, is related to this and how we can use it to then quantified or measured the interactions at the molecular level. So we have again our diagram in which we have an excitation and we have the non-radiative excitation paths. And in this case, we're going to bring close by the energy levels of the acceptor. So we have in uh, your left, the donor and the right, the acceptor. And now, instead of actually going back to the ground state through fluorescence, we're going to transfer the energy that uh, is given on a photon, and we're basically going back to the excited state of the acceptor. In this case, this is followed by a relaxation and fluorescence. So we can think of this that when we excite the uh, donor, we're going back to the ground state by transferring uh, all of the energy that we had there to our acceptor and creating fluorescence now in our acceptor instead of the donor. Now, this doesn't happen all the time. There are key parameters that define whether the foster uh, resonance energy transfer takes place. The first one is the distance. The fluorophores have to be close enough, and basically, FRET does not happen if 
they are more than 10 nanometers apart. The second one has to do with the over, overlap of the donor emission and the acceptor absorption. So you cannot uh, have fret between molecules that are too far apart on the spectra. And the proportion of this overlap will define how well this uh, effect can happen. And the third one has to do with the orientation. Uh, you can think of uh, uh, two wells uh, that are turning in space. And if you want to pass energy from one on the other, you cannot do it uh, unless they are open, one facing each other. So these three things, again, is the distance between the two, the overlap of the emission and the excitation of the acceptor. And the other one is what we call the dipole orientations or the orientation between the two fluorophores. Uh, you cannot do it if you are perpendicular to each other. So if we look at this diagram, what it comes down to is that uh, when we're doing FRET, we're basically adding a new way to go back to the ground state without emitting fluorescence when we're talking about the donor. It means that if FRET happens, uh, the number of times that you emit uh, will decrease. So uh, sometimes the FRET can be measured through the changes in density. So you would expect the intensity of the donor to go down and the intensity of the acceptor to go up. Now, the reality is that uh, because of the overlap and because of uh, the fluorescence, uh, it is often difficult to excite the donor only without exciting a little bit of the acceptor directly. And uh, it is not as straightforward. Now, if you look at this, uh, we can also talk about uh, the time uh, between the excitation and the fluorescence. This relaxation time that I have depicted between the S1 and S2 in the excited state is what we call lifetime. So it's exactly the difference in time between the emission of the photon and the excitation. What happens when we have FRET then is that this lifetime shortens. And this is independent on the intensities. This is a really added bonus when you're looking at FRET through lifetimes is that you don't need to look at the intensities of both the acceptor and the donor, but you can really concentrate only on the donor lifetime and a reduction of the lifetime is proportional to the transfer of the energy. So this, we can see it here. So uh, lifetime is basically the slope uh, on a decay, and uh, the mathematics that go along are depicted here. So the intensity is equal to a uh, pre-exponential uh, factor and exponential time over the lifetime of the donor. What happens when we have FRET is that we have a proportion of the molecules that will not change. You see that the slope is the same, but you have a proportion that actually now is interacting. This has a sharper uh, slope, which is a shorter lifetime in this case. And 
so basically the overall lifetime of this, which is, is a, the addition of the proportions of, of the molecules that have not changed, plus the proportion of the molecules that have changed, uh, results in an overall um, decrease in the lifetime. Uh, this is why the classical way to analyze lifetimes is that you create a decay curve, like the one that you can see here, and we will do an exponential fitting. In this case, uh, you have the lifetime that is given by this slope. You have two possibilities. Either you have a mono-exponential decay, in this case, uh, the fitting and the results are relatively easy uh, because you have one value, or you have the decay that is a little bit more complex and you will need to do multi-exponential fittings on them. Again, I will not go through all of the specifics of how to do this, uh, and I will advise you to go back to the books I referenced in the beginning uh, to get more information about this. There are two other ways of doing this are non-fitting approaches that uh, were published in 2007 and in 2008. The first one by the group from uh, Michel Dickman and Enrico Graton, and it's called the phaser approach that you can see here. This is uh, an analysis method that uh, you can also find in uh, the SP8 Falcon that we use on the example I will show later on. And the second one is called the minimal fraction of interaction donor that was developed uh, by Sergi Padilla, Martamier, Maite Copé in Paris in 2008. And uh, I want to touch now about uh, the tricky aspects that you can get through lifetime. Uh, when you're studying biology, what we want is tools that allows us to quantify uh, our functional imaging. And lifetime can do that with three different values that you can get. The first one is just the actual lifetime values. Second one are what is called a threat efficiency. And the third one is the fraction of interaction donor. The fluorescence lifetime actually, what happens is that uh, whenever you have changes in the microenvironment around your fluorophore, you will have a diminution of your uh, lifetime. This is due because you're adding non-radiative desixitation paths. So something like uh, a change in pH or different ions around your fluorescent proteins will have uh, a direct um, interaction with the proteins and you basically get lower lifetimes. The second one is the threat efficiency. As I mentioned, if you have a donor and an acceptor, then uh, the amount of uh, threat will depend on a couple of values. And in the case of the threat efficiency, the two values are the distance between the donor and acceptor. That means that as the donor and acceptor get closer to each other, then the efficiency of the transfer increases. And the second one is the orientation. So if you have a random orientation or if you have fixed orientation, this will have an implication of how well you can do this transfer. And we go now to the third one is the fraction of interaction donor values. So 
on the fraction of interaction, the interesting thing is that it gives us the proportion of molecules that undergo changes in lifetime. The equation looks like this. And uh, so you can see the equation of the efficiencies is basically the differences between the lifetime of uh, the fret event comparing it to the lifetime of the donor only. On the fraction is actually the free exponential values of the fret component on our, our equation over the total free uh, exponential values. Uh, this may look a little bit complicated, but what we're doing with the fraction of interaction donors is basically calculating the area under the curve of the decay that corresponds to the molecules that have been affected. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. This is quite powerful because it means that we can count the number of events that have changed from our control. And this is uh, key for uh, what I want to discuss now, which is uh, the FRED biosensors and how the changes in lifetime I just mentioned uh, can really be a very strong tool to define what is happening in uh, our samples. And uh, all of what I'm going to tell you now comes from a paper that we published recently. It just came out in March 2019 in Nature Immunology. Uh, this is a work that I did at the University of Oxford and the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics uh, in collaboration with other uh, researchers in the UK and elsewhere. Uh, I have not listed the full list of authors because it would have taken the whole page, uh, but it has been a, a really exciting time to look at a new immunodeficiency. So in this case, we're going to be talking about uh, zinc transporters. The protein complex is called ZIP7, and it resides in the uh, ER in uh, B cells. So because we were interested in looking at uh, this uh, protein complex, uh, which functions should be linked to zinc, we decided to use uh, FRED biosensors that can sense the changes in zinc. So we use uh, two sets of FRED biosensors. The first one was published in 2009 in Nature Methods. Uh, and you can see here uh, figure one from this paper. These are basically uh, blue fluorescent proteins, cerulean, and a yellow one, citrine, that are, are linked to domains, ATOX1 and WD4, that when bind, bound to zinc, they will actually have a change in conformation. The second set was described a, a little bit later. Uh, this is from uh, ACS Chemical Biology from the same group in London. And in this case, they improve their probes and they make ER resident equivalent probes. These in our paper would uh, allow us to compare this zinc in the ER to the cytosol. So uh, let's take this as an example so that we can go back to our first discussion on FRET and FLIM and see how this translates into understanding the biology. So we see here that actually uh, we have a biosensor in which the two fluorescent proteins are stuck together. 
we have a maximum fret. So that means that the energy is being always transferred from the blue protein to the yellow one, unless we add zinc. When we have zinc in the medium, what will happen is that these two fluorescent proteins will separate from each other, and so you will have less fret. Okay, this is very important because it defines that the maximum fret value is equal to an absence of zinc. Uh, the reality is that you cannot have zero zinc in your media unless uh, you want to kill your cells. So in this case, the maximum fret is the basal state in our cells, is the minimum amount of zinc bound that can be tolerated without killing these cells. So whenever we have an increase in zinc, it will mean that the lifetimes are going to increase. This is the inverse of most traditional biosensors. So in most biosensors, what happens is that when you add a metabolite, you create FRET, and therefore the lifetime decreases. In this case, when zinc is present, then you have less FRET, therefore the lifetime of the donor will increase. So uh, we go back to uh, the equation I showed you before. We, because we have FRET, we have the intensity that's equal to two pre-exponential factors multiplied by, in one hand, the lifetime of the donor only plus a lifetime of FRET. This allows us to calculate the fraction of donor, which we can see here. And in this case, this FD value is equal to the proportion of high FRET, which is equal to the absence of zinc. Okay, that perhaps cannot help us more, but we can actually just go to this very short equation. One minus the FD will be equal to the proportional increase of the zinc concentration in the cells. So that means that if we want to answer what is the effect of a mutation on ZIP7 on the cells, we can evaluate this through lifetime because when we have the values of lifetime, we will be able to translate this into one minus FD values, which will give us the proportional increase of zinc concentration in the cell. So we will know right away if a given mutation on the ZIP7 uh, protein uh, is related or not to changes in zinc concentrations within the cell. This is exactly what we did and uh, this is uh, on our paper. We use two different uh, ECAWI biosensors that have different affinities to zinc and what we wanted is to compare the cytosolic with the ER zinc uh, concentrations in both wild type cells and in P198A uh, mutants. In our paper what we saw is that we found some mutations in these ZIP7 uh, proteins in uh, some patient samples and we wanted to make sure that we could understand at a molecular level what is the role of these mutations in the zinc homeostasis? In our, the patients that we found this mutation, uh, the phenotype is that uh, these patients cannot 
get mature B cells. This is a severe immunodeficiency in which uh, uh, children basically get very early infections and unless they're treated uh, in an ongoing basis, uh, this uh, will be uh, little to them. Now, because uh, it is not easy to understand the molecular mechanisms in uh, cells from patients, we use uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technology to transfer these exact mutations to some mouse models. And in the mice, we could follow uh, the development of B cells. And uh, the cells that we see now in this figure are primary mouse cells from these either wild type or mutated uh, mice that we have uh, transfected with some uh, lentivirus uh, agents with these biosensors so that we can actually see what is the state of zinc. So after all of that, we could then uh, do images on our lifetime microscope and look at these changes. So on the top row, we see the wild type and what we can see is that we have relatively high zinc concentrations in the cytosol and when we look at the ER biosensor, we have a drop in the zinc concentration. Now, if we look at the lower examples of these cells, we don't see this change anymore. So what we found out is that uh, when we look at the changes in zinc, there's no more changes in the mutated ZIP7 cells. Uh, these suggests that what we have is we have lost the gradient of zinc between the cytosol and the reticulum. And this gradient uh, is key to the passage between pre-B cells to create uh, mature B cells. So now we want to look at the zinc statistics from uh, the FLIM data. Uh, this is very important because uh, we're looking at primary cells and uh, the variability in primary cells uh, has traditionally prevent us from looking at fluorescence lifetime data. In traditional uh, FLIM uh, experiments, you usually have 50, if you're lucky, 100 cells per condition. Part of this is because of the time that it takes you to acquire a film image. Uh, we were fortunate enough uh, when we started working with uh, these cells. Uh, we had uh, some new technology from Leica on the SP8 Falcon that allowed us to uh, go down to uh, one second per acquisition, which make it possible to increase our statistics. If you look at uh, these graphs, if we were to pick only 25 to 50 cells from each one of the graphs, and we could randomly uh, pick low or high numbers. And uh, this is actually what happened on the first attempt of looking at these cells with intensity-based spread methods. So the lifetime methodology that we use here allows us to look through all of this heterogeneity from primary cells build up enough statistics and have the confidence that the changes in lifetime that we see are completely quantitative and reliable. 
in this case is very important for us to look at this because it has very real life implications for uh, the results that we have. The results from this paper are first that uh, the gradient that exists from the cytoplasm to the ER is the key zinc-related cue for the passage or dematuration of the B cells. That if we have any perturbation to this homeostasis, we cannot progress to fully B cell development that would uh, participate to the uh, immune system. We found out also through our work that the ZIP7 germline mutation uh, is embryonic lethal. Uh, this means that our patients uh, have had to have some um, other ways to cope with some of these uh, zinc deficiencies. And so there has to be ways of redundancy within our um, human immune system to cope with this. That patients that still retain a minimal zinc function have only deleterious B cell development, but the rest of the um, zinc functions seems to be all right. And this is the key for us, is that although we know and we're starting to understand immune deficiencies uh, as a whole, whenever we have a ZIP7 patient, whatever treatment has to take into account that what you really want is to circumvent the roadblock created by the lack of uh, zinc gradient between the cytoplasm and um, the ER, and only if we can circumvent this roadblock, we can go to a B cell generation, and only then have a proper cure for this immune deficiency. I want to finish uh, by thanking all of the people that make uh, this work possible. I start with uh, Dr. Sergi Padilla, that was my uh, principal investigator in Oxford. Professor Richard Cornell and Dr. Mokta Neogopka that did uh, most of the important work on this paper and reached out to us to uh, look at the functional part and uh, trust us to uh, test the waters of fluorescence lifetime and uh, uh, that this was going to be the proper way to address the mechanistic questions on the, this paper. Uh, Dr. Chris Lagerholm, uh, colleague in Oxford as well that uh, has been doing some film uh, that allow us to start this work. And a uh, very special thank to Dr. Julia Osato and Frank Heck from Leica Microsystem that uh, were key on building up the technologies that are now in this microscope. Uh, as I mentioned before, traditionally film has been a very slow acquisition uh, technique in which you usually need uh, from two to 10 minutes to do a proper flame acquisition. And now with the instrument that we had in Oxford, so it's the new SPA Falcon from Leica, we managed to reduce this time and this opened for us not only the ability to do more statistics on the cells, but also to do it fast enough that our primary cells uh, were still healthy and uh, in a sound 
condition for us to be able to rely on this data. Finally, I want to thank you for uh, your time and for attention, and I hope that you enjoy fluorescence lifetime imaging as much as I do. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lewis. That was an excellent presentation. Now we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So the first question that we have is about the intensity threat. Um, so is the intensity-based threat analysis still valid? Uh, so I want to thank again for everyone listening and please feel free to ask any questions. So intensity-based threat. Uh, so the short answer is it's always valid and has been always valid as long as you have the proper controls. Okay. Uh, and this is the key thing here is it's not always easy to have all the controls for all of your samples, specifically if you're looking at primary cells or uh, tissue. And in this case, uh, the problem is not the intensity base threat itself, is that the variability of your sample makes it very difficult to get a reliable readout. Uh, this is why we couldn't do this uh, for our study. So if you're looking at either uh, primary cells or you have very dim fluorescence, uh, such as single gene tag from uh, CRISPR-Cas9, then you're going to struggle a lot to have a lot of statistics and to do all of the proper controls. Okay, that makes sense. So our next question is from Tom. Are fitting tools available for the flim fret fitting when the fret pair distances are not fixed? So for example, a continuum of distances. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, so uh, when fitting flim, uh, what is key for a reliable fitting is actually your photon statistics. Oh, so okay. if you have uh, enough photons on the different distances, you will be able to get them out of fitting. Uh, now you're probably better off doing a phaser analysis uh, if you have such uh, a setting. Okay. It's just a different approach uh, mm -hmm. that actually I think I mentioned a little bit in my webinar. Uh, was developed uh, from uh, Michelle Dickman and Enrico Graton as a paper in 2008 by a physical journal. And these would be the better tool for this kind of uh, setting. Okay. And now, um, I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, but uh, Moyne asks, has there been any study of including more than one donor or more than one acceptor? And will having more than one donor increase the lifetime? Uh, so, uh, no, okay. having more than one donor does not increase the lifetime. So you're better off uh, having multiple acceptors mm -hmm. because you increase the chances of doing threats so you can get to better efficiency. Uh, what is a little bit more interesting than this is uh, choosing better your threat pairs, donor acceptors. There are some that work better than others but also you can use dark acceptors. Oh, okay. So in this mm -hmm. case, you only measuring in lifetime the lifetime of the donor only, and then because you don't have a fluorescence in the acceptor, you actually free that window for uh, imagining something else and multiplexing. You can even have uh, two or three fret pairs like this. 
Okay, and we have a couple of um, questions about zinc. So um, the first is from Zeritza. How do the different affinities of the probes to zinc affect measurements of zinc concentration? Yes, so if you uh, go back to the papers from uh, the group that did the ECALWI, they actually have uh, probes that have different affinities. And that is why in our paper, we actually choose two different affinities, the ECALWI 4 and the ECALWI 6. And what happens is that uh, the probe saturates at different concentration. So once the probe is saturated, you basically cannot read if there are more zinc out of it. Okay. So this is your limits of uh, detection. If you have a cell that produces a lot of zinc, you will reach this maximum faster. Mm -hmm. And so you have to adapt the different probes to the different concentrations. The best on a design is to actually have uh, two or three different uh, concentration probes to know what is your maximum limit and know that you are not yet saturating it within your cell. Okay. And then we have a question about um, Sergio about the response of your biosensors. Is the response of your biosensors to zinc linear? Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, this is true for all biosensors. So uh, what mm -hmm. you're looking at is uh, the affinity of the uh, small molecule to change the conformation. Okay. And so basically, what you do is that you have a, a only 50% of all of your molecules being affected mm -hmm. or 30% and so forth. And so because is the proportion of the overall number of molecules that is affected, then the response should be linear. Okay. Uh, the appropriate thing to do is to uh, calibrate this once. Okay. And so you just actually increase concentrations and you can see the linearity of it. So you can see how it looks. And from there you could go to absolute concentrations, yes. Okay, and then we have a question from Andrew. They're asking about the current acquisition time of the FRET sensor. So the acquisition time of a FRET sensor uh, depends on two things. One is the sensitivity of your system and uh, the quality of the fluorescent proteins that is on the sensor. Because mm -hmm. at the end, the minimum time that you need to acquire is the number of photons that you need to have a reliable flame image. Okay. This is what has mm -hmm. limited things historically is uh, if you have a system that cannot count a lot of photons very fast, it means that you have to take your time until you accumulate the exact number. Or if you have a fluorescent protein that uh, is very sensitive and that will bleach very fast, you will have the same effect. You will not be able to go very fast. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have some uh, nice FRET pairs, for example, that uh, there's a nice paper from Kiz Yaling in which he uses a lot of mTOR quasars, even with dark acceptors. And in this case, the quantum yield of the protein is uh, 92%. So that means that every time that you excite it, 92% uh, of the time it will emit a photon. Uh, if you combine that with a very sensitive uh, system, then you could get a reliable measurement in uh, 20, 30 milliseconds. I don't know if this completely answers, but it always depends on how, mu how much biosensor you can put in your cell, okay. how good the presence of the biosensor is, and then is your system able to uh, acquire 
all of these photons fast enough. So those are the three parameters. Okay, and then um, kind of related to that, um, Arunima asks, how does the signal to noise ratio slash background affect your analysis? So uh, when you're doing flim, the first thing that you do is that you subtract the background. If you don't mm -hmm. do this, then you cannot uh, have proper lifetimes. Uh, and at the end, it's not the signal to noise that is as important here. It is uh, the photon statistics for the decay. Okay. Uh, now, on most flim systems today, you use hybrid detectors in which mm -hmm. the noise is close to zero. Uh, and you're doing photon counting. Okay. So then your measurement of the lifetime is just as reliable as your photon statistics again. But the background uh, has no big contribution. On cells and other things, sometimes we worry about autofluorescence, for example. Right. But autofluorescence has different lifetime. Mm -hmm. So you can separate the autofluorescence from the actual fluorescence oh, okay. out of lifetime as well. So again, the only thing that you want to avoid is having a system that leaks uh, stray light inside. Okay. As long as you don't have that, that you have a proper flame setup, um, background is not an issue. Okay, and then we have a question from uh, Mehmet. They're asking if this FRET plus flame application is possible with low speed acquisition time. Um, flim detector. So by low speed, they mean two to three minutes. <laughs> so uh, back in the day when I was doing my thesis, <laughs> we had to do uh, two, three minute acquisitions mm -hmm. uh, to get a flim image. Uh, this is of course possible. Usually the caveat of this is that you illuminate for a long time, so you have a higher probability of bleaching. Right. Uh, what I would suggest uh, I mean, I think I, I understand the question in a different way is if your time points need to be three minutes apart, I would do uh, not extremely fast acquisition, but short enough that you uh, have just dead times in which you don't image and you let uh, your uh, cells or your tissue uh, not be illuminated. So I would do okay. perhaps uh, one or two second uh, flim image uh, as and then stop, wait for whatever time you need to look at the next time point and then image again. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, I think, the beauty of the systems today is that because you can go so fast, you don't have to do continuous imaging. You can also decide to just sample at given time points and in between let your system uh, be without light. Okay, that makes sense. And that's also kind of nice because then you can do that without having to have that photo bleaching as a concern. Exactly. And then um, we have a question from Rosanna. They're asking about the uh, how does the SP8 technology make one second acquisition times possible? <laughs> uh, so traditionally, the problem is uh, for FLIM we use something called TCSPC, time-correlated single photon counting, uh, that use some uh, boxes, they're called, uh, is just electronic single uh, photon counting detectors plus 
uh, a box to actually count these photons and get the decays. Um, because of the limits of the physical limits of the electronics, you can only measure about uh, one photon every uh, 20 to 100 pulses. Otherwise, you have okay. some distortion on the electronics. Uh, Leica, what it did is we don't have such a card. We basically stream all of the detector photons to our computer and mm -hmm. all of our laser pulses to the computer. And then on the graphics card, we basically can analyze everything on the fly. Oh, cool. So uh, what happens is the whole system has uh, what we call a dead time mm -hmm. of 1.5 nanoseconds. So after 1.5 nanoseconds, the whole system is ready to catch the next photon. Oh, neat. So you don't have that um, pileup distortion problem. Exactly. You don't have uh, this pileup at these speeds. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that because you can accumulate uh, up to one photon per pulse, and we are have 80 megahertz repetitions, we can basically have 80 mega counts per second. Oh. And that builds up your statistics very fast. Yeah. So you can actually measure GDK and you can have a proper image in one second without a problem. As long as you have some photons. Obviously, right. if, uh, if you, you have, have photons, no photons, you cannot do anything. <laughs> if you don't have any photons, you can't measure anything. Exactly. Okay. Um, our next question comes from um, Vinod, and they're asking if you have any experience in measuring DNA protein interactions on live cells using FlimFret to look at spaci spaci ugh, spatial temporal resolution. Uh, so the easy answer is yes. <laughs> Uh, uh, the best would be if uh, they want to get in contact with me. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to uh, uh, provide more insights. But uh, yes, this is possible. Uh, and actually, uh, there's some really nice work from uh, Sergi Padilla, Marc Tamier, and Maite Copé um, on uh, uh, chromatin dynamics that just came out uh, oh, nice. on Flim. Mm -hmm. They were using FLIM to look at the uh, fluctuation of FLIM and how uh, these can give you insights into chromatin dynamics and open frames and closed frames and all that. So if you do that and you multiplex with uh, the proteins that you're interested in, you can follow a lot of other things as well. That's cool. Um, and then the... Uh... I think this is our last question from um, our and it's from Archana. Does the concentration of fluorophore affect the lifetime change? So, <laughs> generally speaking, no. Okay. What happens is that uh, the lifetime is the intrinsic time that a fluorophore will be emitted after an excitation. If you have five fluorophores, or you have ten, or mm -hmm. you have fifteen or 20, all of them will be emitting with the same uh, time delay from the excitation to the emission. And so the lifetime is not dependent on the expression levels and the intensity. Okay. With a caveat is, let's suppose that you pack many, 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 many of these fluorophores. So instead of having five or 50, you have 10,000. Oh, okay. And you have a very, 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 very small volume. Mm -hmm. That means that actually you will be packing all of these fluorophores together, and then you could have some effects from the crowding of the molecules. 
okay. so then you have self-quenching events and this can affect the lifetime mm -hmm. but so if this is uh i will say at the point that you start affecting the lifetime from the concentration is likely that you're very far from biological relevant settings okay it's because so you, you really basically have overexpressed so much yeah that the cell i mean uh, you're just looking at artifacts and this is the one thing that you have to be worried but this is uh more of a biological issue you have to really know uh your system and uh if you see that expressing a protein changes the shape of the cell mm -hmm. then you probably don't want to imitate. <laughs> fair enough okay oh we had somebody sneak one in, somebody else sneak one in um it's from Arnima, and they ask, do you use a resonance, a resonance scanner? So in this paper, we didn't. Okay. Uh, in the Leica system, anything you can do with a confocal scanning, uh, you can do it with lifetime. Okay. But uh, for the data I presented, uh, we just use the regular scanner. Uh, and usually, if you're looking at a single cell and mm -hmm. you uh, are zooming into your cell, generally speaking, you can go uh, extremely fast. Okay. Uh, at least for most biological uh, uh, outputs. If you need to go faster, you can switch to the resonance scanner, but then you have to do uh, the proper controls and have uh, the proper curves to ensure that you're still quantitative. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the webinar. So thank you again, Lewis, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Leica Microsystems. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 to 48 hours. And there you can see the other webinars we've lined up for you on Bite Size Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Leica Microsystems and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.